and gentlemen of the IoT, welcome to Real World IoT, powered by 151 Advisors. I am Ken Briota, your host, and today we're going to be talking about basically the fundamental building block of life itself and how the IoT is making it better. Uh, before we get to that, for those of you new listeners out there, Real World IoT's mission is to uh, shed the varnish and, and strip away the hype on the IoT and really talk about real world issues, real world solutions, and real-world outcomes for IoT businesses, helping them to grow and helping the the industry to grow and do better. So that's our uh, extremely modest mission. <laughs> My guest today is Manu. He is the founder and CEO of Waterbit. Manu, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ken. Uh, just a slight correction. I'm not the CEO, and the, I'm the co-founder and president, which <laughs> I appreciate the introduction. <laughs> my my apologies uh, for the promotion. Um, <laughs> uh, in case folks aren't familiar with you, uh, Manu, um, or with Waterbit, can you give us a little bit of background on, on what you guys do? Well, we start with a uh, company mission is based on addressing water as the most valuable resource available to us. And based on uh, taking that as a starting point and trying to figure out how to best use water, our company mission is to optimize the use of water across agriculture. And that's essentially what anchors us and everything we do in the IoT space is based around the sensing and control systems needed to achieve that goal. And uh, it's it's one of my favorite parts about the IoT really is is addressing these fundamental sort of improvements in quality of life for folks and uh, and and for for business operations things like energy management and water and agriculture um, I I don't want to gild the lily too much I want to jump right in here and and, and talk about mm. uh, start with uh, Kanpeki rice which is a as far as I understand it a dry farming rice operation um, that, that you guys have been working with uh, for some data analytics and, and getting water to the to the rice fields, you know, I, I think folks generally are aware that rice is perhaps the staple crop for most of the world, and uh, it, it requires usually uh, really a hell of a lot of water <laughs> to 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 get going. So, can you tell us a little bit about that project and and uh, what you guys are doing there? Excellent. So, uh, first of all, Kempeki is a sixth-generation rice farming operation in the Sacramento Delta area, just actually slightly north of Sacramento, and uh, uh, located in Pleasant Grove. They have a, an amazing product. It's an award-winning rice varietal that has won best of uh, rice in, in several competitions worldwide. So, for us, uh, engaging with Kempeki was like engaging with the Tier One. I mean, when you work with the best in class, they push, right? Sure. So it was uh, it was interesting to work with Kempeki Rice, and the the net of it was that Kempeki was looking uh, ahead. Greg Van Dyke, the owner of Kempeki Rice, was looking ahead and wanted to build a lasting company with a with agricultural methods that were adopted to the 21st century. So he wanted to move away from the traditional uh, planted, flooded, harvested type of operations to a more nuanced operation that said, exactly how much do I need, when do I need it, and how do I apply it? And then how do I adapt that to the way that I already have my infrastructure set up? So he was able to use our technology to detect the, um, the right timing to flood the field. So he actually does alternate wet-dry farming which is really heavily optimized to manage weeds, improve taste, 
and reduce the methane gas output. Uh, methane is uh, a, a global warming uh, greenhouse gas emission that rice farming in general produces due to anaerobic uh, and digestion in the microbes uh, when the fields are flooded. So by reducing methane, it's also a, a global warming greenhouse solution or a big yeah, part of that. Sure. And Greg, Greg's really committed to building the farming of the future. So that's essentially how we engaged. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm really interested in this because, and I'm no expert by any means um, in rice farming or really much of anything else, but the idea of figuring out to sort of precise levels when you need the water and how much you need, it seems incredibly complex. What kind of data parameters are you guys looking at to, to determine this stuff? So we, are, we have a multiple phases of engagement that we've planned over the next couple of seasons with Greg. So we'll start with the most simple what we have right here today. We were able to uh, insert uh, sensors um, pretty much buried in the ground and uh, soaked part of the time, uh, soaked with water, so they had to robust and waterproof, not just water resistant. Uh, So reliable sensor systems, and we were able to detect the uh, soil moisture levels as well as the soil temperature levels. Now, we were able to do that and then relay that information reliably to, his, uh, to a gateway that was located about a mile away and do that uh, continually. That gave Greg insight into how much time it was taking for water to soak through the soil and, in, a, in essence, being able to time. Uh, like um, When you open, let me take a step back. Irrigation in, in rice fields is today done um, largely with sluice gates. So when you open a sluice, the water flows through the field and go over to the other end and then you step and repeat. And this is slight um, gravity flow that enables this of a two degrees tilt that uh, allows the water to flow well. It's laser leveled. It's a precision uh, precision sport, if you will. So we were able to let, <laughs> we were able to let, uh, get insights in, into how long it was taking the water to reach across the fields, and at what temperature, what was the soil temperature. The soil temperature gave Greg incredible insights into the microbe level activity in the soil, as well as the right timing to apply nutrients and when he needed to water next. That allowed him to essentially reduce the number of weeds um, by timing the flush, the water flushes, and minimize the amount of nutrient uh, he was spending. So he basically was uh, had a better yield and less money out of pocket, leading to about a 30% improvement in his metrics. That is huge. That's like having the benefits of 130 acres when you only have 100 acres, right? That's yeah, yeah. non-trivial. Yeah. So he was, yeah, he was very happy with the trial. We're working together now for the next phase, which is to now detect... What else, and to look at what else can you detect on a rice field that in, in, uh, in the growing phase and how, we, how can we tie that back to the greenhouse gas problems or the optimum uh, use of uh, nutrients so that he can further improve that. Yeah. Now, this is, this is really amazing because when you look at people like you know, Greg Van Dyke and Kampeke and his average yield is about 8,000 pounds per acre, if not better, I think he's actually a lot better, but I let him to de- define his numbers. But his yields are um, something like, depending on where you look at, between four to six times more the yield that you get in Asia. Wow! Uh, and I've I've been following him with Greg and some Asian rice growers in both South Asia and East Asia, 
And we're, we're wondering how, and Greg is deeply committed to this as well, because as you pointed out, rice is the staple food across the world. Uh, so he's deeply committed to showing how to improve rice yields globally and improve quality and, and uh, tonnage. And we're hoping that we'll be able to use his practices and our technologies to have a radical shift in rice productivity in particular over the next couple of years. This is, a, this is just the start. Right, right. And I don't want to uh, uh, get too lost in the weeds here, uh, I suppose metaphorically. But uh, I believe I, I heard once, and I, I thought that this was true, that one of the advantages to the flooding process for rice was that it uh, deters insect problem uh, on the crops, you know, obviously by keeping them submerged to some extent. Uh, is that is that something that is that is part of the, the process that you guys are working with, monitoring bugs, uh, handling pesticide, any of that sort of thing? Or is that sort of not within the scope of what you guys are working on right now? I think that those are things that will be monitored in phase-by-phase engagements. Whether sure. the bug monitors are by us or by a third party mm-hmm. is you know, something to be discussed in the future. I suspect a third party will be better at bug counts and monitors. Okay. But going back to your point, the, the timing of the flush, like, for example, if you know uh, if you can put just the right amount of water and time it correctly, you minimize the amount of time that the bugs have to play around in the swimming pool, so to speak. And that's that's really a key part of, again, of what Greg Van Dyke has been doing with our technologies, being able to time that so you can reduce pesticide use as well and have a better crop. That's It, it really is incredible. And I, I, I uh, read that it's up to about a quarter of uh, 25% water savings. Uh, that that he's seeing now with these timed uh, precision releases of water. And, and, I mean, that's gigantic. I mean, not just in California where water has been an issue the last couple of years, but uh, uh, around the world. I mean, we far, agriculture is the biggest consumer of water. Um, and, you know, it should be. Uh, I, I like to think farms are pretty important. But uh, if we can if we can decrease the amount of water that farms need, not just at rice farming, but you know, in, in all sorts of agriculture, that's that's gigantic in terms of ecology and and more efficient use of resources and that sort of thing. And it's one of my favorite executions on the IOTs is the idea of of resource management, uh, like like with water. Have you have you seen similar uh, sort of decreases in other projects that you've worked on, uh, similar savings in in water levels? Yes, we've actually. Uh, have data that shows us in a spread from uh, from about six percent uh, water savings all the way to forty eight percent in wine grapes. Wow! So we've uh, uh, it's it's quite a spread. And the interesting thing was the six percent saving. And this isn't a case study that we have uh, available. This is from Divine Organics in the Kolinga area, and that's uh, the west side of the Central Valley. So it's in the rain shadow, really dry. But amazingly good soil, and so uh, those uh, we have a divine was growing asparagus. They still do that, and using our technology and timing the application of water, uh, using our, our valve control systems and the wireless system, everything working together, they were able to go from 800 cartons per acre to 1,500 cartons per acre of asparagus while dropping water use six percent. Wow! Wow! Now, and that. 
That's organic asparagus. That's your premium asparagus that you buy in the season. If you've got organic asparagus in California, odds are it came from them. So, and so I, wanted is, translate, is, I wanted to yeah. transition over to talk about uh, Divine Organics and the project that you did there, because the, the idea of, of managing water in, su- in such a precise way seems so counterintuitive to me. Uh, you know, your, your, your numbers said that you, you've reduced the water, allowed helped Divine reduce their water usage by 750,000 gallons. Um, you know, decrease greenhouse gas emissions for fuel for pumps and and, and things like mm-hmm. that. Studying water and fluid dynamics is just fascinating to me, and and the idea of of how you guys measure that with such a simple metric as time is is fascinating to me. How did you end up in with with that and with uh, this being the metric that, that you were focusing on, among others. Well, we we actually came at it counterintuitively. You know, um, many of us in the in Waterbits have a background in what I'd call um, old-fashioned hardcore engineering, where we build stuff and make stuff and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we had a, a long background in electronics design and manufacture in Silicon Valley. And when our, we've spent tons of time on in the in the Central Valley, usually there's one or two of us out in the Central Valley two or three days a week on any given week. So as we looked around, we realized that the fundamental problem wasn't so much that uh, farmers were not trying to save money. It was that they had a business to run and they needed to stay in business. So the smart way to look at it was to say, how do we help our clients, our, our, our growers, make the best use of what they have? And so rather than uh, meet with a client and say, let's help you save water, we met with the clients and say, how can we help your growing operations do better? And then within that, we focused on the management and of, uh, of how water gets used. Right. So if you want to take a, a factory analog, suppose we were trying to run an assembly line building, say, 100 Corvettes a day on an eight-hour shift. So you'd be building roughly 100 divided by seven uh, working hours. And so you want to time the rate at which the engines peel off the delivery truck and go into the assembly line. If you have 102 engines, you end up with too many for the day. If you have 99, you're shipped one was short one Corvette shipping out, and that's not good. Right. So if you take that kind of thinking, then the way you look at plants are that they are a natural factory. They're they're nature's factory for producing amazingly tasting fluids like wine grapes or strawberries, which is basically uh, flavored water with a texture on it, Mm -hmm. or carbohydrates in a potato or a carbohydrate protein that you would find in nuts or grains. And these are are amazingly well-tuned production factories, if you will. I mean, you give them sunshine, the right amount of nutrients, and a little bit of water, and the plants give us amazing things. So we took the approach as, well, why don't we treat the plants like the, the amazing factories they are and deliver water at the rate at which the plants can actually use it so that uh, you, you try to optimize that as much as possible. Now, Israelis made the first breakthrough with um, drip irrigation. But due to the size of the operations that we have in commercial agriculture, it meant that even with drip, people were running 
extended hours and they were trying to optimize against field size and pump capacity and everything else and also the availability of labor to turn pumps and valves on and off. What Waterbit has done is we've kind of broken that dependency chain and given uh, our clients the ability to manage the timing and delivery rate of water to best feed the needs of their plants. And farmers are pretty smart. They know their crops really well. So when when you give that kind of power into their hands and make it easy for them to use, and then just get out of the way, basically, uh, they do amazing things. And so that you can start to see that with Divine and with Kampeki and with others. It's just uh, our job is to get the technology into the hands of our clients and then stay out of the way. And they just do amazing things. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, you, you talk about approaching farming from an engineering mindset, and it just reminds me of the old... Uh, science fiction joke about how really you don't have to worry about mad scientists very often because they spend so much time doing mad control groups and uh, and mad double-blind studies. It's the mad engineers that you've really got to watch out for. <laughs> um, Fair enough. <laughs> and and I, I, I like thinking about uh, sort of not traditional engineering fields in an engineering mindset because as you guys have done because the 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 focus on solutions and uh, and then getting to the parameters is is really interesting to me and it's sort of the the heart of what the potential of the IoT can be I think um so uh what's next for for Waterbit where where are you guys uh, uh looking to go next you're going to keep working with agriculture folks you're going to uh Revolutionize nuclear power next. What's what's up next? <laughs> uh, there's such a list of things to do. Really interesting, big problems to solve. But I think for for at least another decade or so, I can see Waterbit just focused on just getting it right for for growers across the world. I mean, the uh, when you look at the the space, agriculture is probably the world's largest employer. And, you know, we all eat, we all want to eat, we all want nutritious, healthy food that, and good food. We want food that's free of chemicals, we want food that's grown nearby, we want food that tastes good. And these are all things that can only happen when you have good water and good soil. The, without those two, obviously good weather, uh, you don't, really don't have much I mean, you can grow stuff in a greenhouse, but I mean, you, can you taste the difference between a sun-dried tomato and a greenhouse tomato? And the answer is probably yes. And which one would you rather have? And it's self-evident. So there is a, there's room for greenhouse operations, which is really energy cost driven. But I think the vast majority of agriculture will continue to be outdoors where sunshine is free and uh, you don't have to create more greenhouse gases in order to grow stuff. So I I can see our uh, go, go ahead. ahead go ahead you 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 go ahead so I can see our future to continue to drive in that direction and from a technology perspective one of the things that I would distinguish is this automation and this autonomy today Waterbit is in the automation phase and I believe that we will be moving uh, briskly into the autonomy area of autonomy where 
we can install irrigation systems that pretty much self-adjust to the environment. That to us is really the goal, is to make technology blindingly easy to use so that you know, technology works when no one knows it's there. It should yeah. be just something that happens. Yeah. And I think that's our goal, is to make uh, amazingly simple technology that just works. And if we can achieve that, then I think it will be a journey well-traveled. That's, uh, that's uh, an ambitious but worthy goal, I think. Um, the, you know, I, I constantly harp on the idea of, uh, I look forward to, the, to IoT being ubiquitous and, and just sort of uh, almost putting itself out of the limelight because it's so common and part of the operations of systems throughout the, throughout the, the world and, and helping things run more efficiently and more autonomously. Um, I'm curious about your thinking on uh, the sort of vertical farm trend and indoor farming trends in general, since you touched on that a little bit with greenhouses, because a lot of the push for that is also in terms of water management and, and water savings. I visited a, uh, mm-hmm. a vertical farm in New Jersey not that long ago, uh, which uh, at the time was the largest farm in the world if you measured it in terms of yield because they were able to mm-hmm. harvest i think they said six times a year their so their effective acreage made them the the this gigantic uh, capacity uh in a warehouse you know type building where they had you know mm-hmm. uh, 25 or 30 vertical tiers of of plants um and, and i'm i'm curious i think they were using uh, uh aeroponics uh, with was there was mm-hmm. their method there, but I'm curious what your thinking is mm-hmm. on on that sort of farming and and I mean uh, it's great for food deserts and cities and, and stuff like that, but um, in terms mm-hmm. of your work and 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 with water with what Waterbit does and and that kind of thing, uh, what's your thinking about the sort of expansion of those types of farms? Okay. So this one is now kind of um, my personal philosophy, so my apologies if, it's, if I come out sounding somewhat biased. Um, vertical farmings, uh, vertical farms and other things are what I call a first world luxury. They exist in areas where energy is cheap, available, and reliable. If we were to try to put a vertical farm operation, say somewhere in East Africa or South Asia, where the grid is creaky, and the population today is living on you know, less than a couple of a few hundred watts of energy use per day. Okay. Then sitting a parking something over there is somewhat disingenuous. In a society in the United States where we use a couple of kilowatts per day of energy across automobiles, air conditioning, and everything else, our allocation of energy for indoor farming is uh, is not really. And noticeable to the to the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. it's an affordable use. The second part of that, so the the energy to me is the critical area. When energy is cheap, when you go below four cents per kilowatt hour reliably, indoor farming starts to make sense from the energy side because there's only so much sunshine you can get, and you, to build multiple layers of indoor farming, you need to have the energy source to provide that lighting for photosynthesis. Right. right. The other part that I have, when I visited a couple of indoor farms uh, on clearly smaller scale, one of the things I noticed was the incessant use of chemicals. In order to compensate for not having microbes in the soil, you have to spray either aerophonics or feed in the water that circulates an incredible amount of substitute chemicals. Uh, Me, personally, 
I would like to have my lettuce grown in the dirt without an, uh, without swimming in various forms of chemicals. That's just me. And maybe uh, I'm a biased uh, um, viewer of the scenario, but I'm I'm not convinced that I want to eat produce grown in a tub full of uh, chemicals on a 24-7 basis. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have my microbes do the work. <laughs> so that, to me, you know, so to me, there's, uh, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but, you know, to me, stuff that grows in the dirt, under the sun, with a little bit of help, that's, that's the way God meant us to live. And, you know, I'm, I apologize if I come out sounding that kind of fundamental. <laughs> I, want, I wanted this your cool. opinion, this yeah. Is, um, and I don't disagree. I, you asked me. I like the... Uh, I work I work uh, part time on a farm in the winter here uh, that uh, is a it's a year round farm uh, here in the in Connecticut where I live but in the winter they do uh, mm-hmm. holiday trees uh, is a large portion of their mm-hmm. their farm um, so I, I work for them in the winter and uh, so I, I appreciate some good in the dirt farming um, I do I, I I would disagree a little bit I think that the um, that the indoor farm it has has its uses and it, it it's got some great potential in in terms of volume mm-hmm. in terms of addressing food shortage uh you make you make it a really interesting point though about sort of uh places with unreliable energy would not be able to it would be probably detrimental to try to put in something that would be that big a a power sink <laughs> uh, into, yeah, into the I grid mean, in in you know East Africa or or uh, you know some of the, some places in in South and East Asia, um, right? To me, I that, know you get the the count. Go ahead, you finish. I was just going to say, to me, that sounds like a problem with uh, well, let's figure out how to get better at energy. Uh, let's get the the IoT folks who are working on that on energy transmission and, and generation to 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 get better and address that problem and get them some more uh, and and more reliable energy sources in those areas, and then we can talk about uh, talk about getting uh, getting the food yields up. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So if you, if you take the energy problem, and I think energy and water have an interesting nexus. So if you look at the energy problem uh, that will be related to outdoor and indoor farming, so let's take everyone talks solar, so let's take solar. So photovoltaic uh, uh, peak efficiency is about 22% if you have direct sunlight vertically, yep. full full sun. And it varies from uh, not from one to you know zero uh, as the sun goes through the cycle. So you end up having to create storage systems to store energy, right. and also it's 22%. So that means if I have covered the roof of a vertical grow area, by the time I convert the photovoltaic energy and then store it and then convert it back, I am less than the 22%. So by default, I'm operating in a deficit no matter what. I can then acquire more energy by going out to the nearby land and covering it up with solar panels, or I can find a higher energy density method of power generation, maybe wave action, or tidal action, or uh, old-fashioned nuclear power plant. And, but until I get the sustained energy at a reliable and low cost, it doesn't work. Now, in the United States, we are a wealthy nation, and we can afford to cover up the Tonopah Desert with the mirrors and other solar systems and salt, uh, uh, melted salt systems. Right. That makes the energy available to us, and so we have choices. Other countries do not have that level of infrastructure, and therefore I believe for a long time to come, 
that uh, we need to continue to do the work that Waterbit has started. I'm happy if 20 years from now, Waterbit is no longer needed. That means we would have accomplished our goal. Sure. Um, the, the, the calculus of land use for energy versus land use for food is a really interesting uh, back and forth I think, and it's a discussion that certainly, uh, as much as I'd like to think that you and I are going to solve it right now, probably will go on for some time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there are enough vested interests to keep that going for a long time. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are reaching the end of our time. Uh, Manu, where can folks find out more about you and, and about Waterbit's work? I think uh, the easiest one is to check out our website at waterbit.com. We also have a Facebook page. And on that, you can also take a look at the, the other things we're doing to work towards a more sustainable future. For example, we have eliminated the use of battery technology in our nodes, so runs clean. It uh, actually raises solar energy and stores it, but just enough. So we are, we are walking the walk. And so check us out on Facebook. Check us out on our webpage. Uh, there is a Twitter handle. Just look for Waterbit. And, um, yeah, uh, love to hear from people's opinion. Uh, you don't have to be a customer to tell us what you think about what we're doing. We'd love to hear uh, from people. Uh, Facebook is a great way to communicate with us, and there's, a, there's an active, um, usually quite a few people on Facebook uh, asking questions and putting, in, putting comments in as well. Awesome. And if uh, any of you out there are farmers, uh, it might be, uh, might be worth checking out some of the case studies there on, uh, uh, at waterbit.com uh, at the least. Absolutely. Um, you can uh, uh, find out more about uh, 151 Advisors and uh, Real World IRT powered by 151 Advisors uh, on Twitter at 151 Advisors uh, or at 151advisors.com, of course. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, we invite you to please hit that subscribe button on uh Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever it is that you uh, are listening right now. And uh, feel free to, if you like, to leave us a rating and review. Those help us uh, raise the profile and get a few more earballs on the show. So we appreciate that. Uh, Manu, thank you so much for being my guest today. This has been a, a really interesting conversation. You're welcome. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this episode of Real World IoT, powered by 151 Advisors. Make sure you go online to check out more content on how you can monetize the connected world at 151advisors.com. That's 151advisors.com for all the information and content like this podcast that will help you power your business and monetize your business into the next phase of the IoT. Thank you again for listening to Real World IoT, powered by 151 Advisors. I am your host, Ken Briota, signing off. See you next time.